really great to uh, to see you, and my sincere apologies if you if you came this evening. Uh, looking forward to hearing my esteemed colleague, Pastor Brent. Uh, Kristen, his wife, is unwell, and, uh, and we decided together just yesterday that he just needed to be released from this evening so that he could uh, be with her and take care of the kids. How many know that's a really good idea when family is hurting? So um, uh, please pray for Kristen. She's in hospital at the moment with a variety of uh, difficulties. She's been struggling with her health for some time. And uh, at the end of our evening tonight, we're going to really commit them to the Lord and really pray for them. But Pastor Brent sends his greetings to you. And you have been in this uh, series. How many of you were here last week? For this series. Okay, that's good. How many of you are here this week? Okay, just checking. And uh, you are looking at this theme, Spiritual Growth Catalysts. And uh, this evening what we're going to do is look at providential relationships. Providential relationships. Now, before we dive into this, I'd like you to have a bit of a visit with each other. So if you're sitting by yourself, you might want to just... get up and go and join another table because otherwise it's going to be difficult and slightly strange for you to have a little chat. Um, And what I want us to do is think about this question we're going to put on the screen right now. And that is, can you name one person who has been strategic and providential in your life and spiritual growth? And in one sentence, say why that is. Name one person who's been strategic and providential in your life and spiritual growth and in one sentence, say why? You've got three minutes, so go ahead, make some noise, and let's talk about it.
Great. Well, our time is up, so turn back around if you would. Well, we're thinking tonight about providential relationships. If we are going to experience growth in our lives, spiritually growth as human beings, we're seeing tonight that we need providential relationships. If I'm looking kind of happy tonight, uh, it's because I really am. Uh, After a week of being home alone, my wife got back from England last night. And that means not only that I am eating food that is actually recognisable as food, which is a significant blessing, but the house is no longer quiet. I go crazy when everything is quiet. And there's conversation again and, and laughter again. I really need conversation. When I became a Christian at the age of uh, 17, coming from a relatively lonely upbringing, I haven't got time to explain that, but when I became a Christian I had a billion questions and I really needed uh, key providential relationships to enable me to have conversations that would give me answers to some of those questions. I was just thinking about this in preparing for this evening. I can remember Peter. Peter was uh, a pastor who had had to retire early at the age of 30 because he had multiple sclerosis. And uh, I think by the time he was 32, he was homebound. He could not get out. And I used to go over to Peter's house. I was just an 18-year-old lad. And I would give Peter as many questions as I could squeeze into our time together. I would fire them at him. And this man, who had had to walk away from the ministry that he loved, he just poured his life into me. And he really was a providential friend, a relationship to me. And then I can think of, as well, I can remember Paddy. Paddy was an Irish guy. And um, he was in the church that we planted as a young, I was a pastor at 21. And, and, and Paddy was loud. Uh, he'd pray loud. Uh, we used to go door to door, visiting people, telling them about Jesus. I don't know whether you've ever done that, but I did it and I hated it. In fact, we used to pray that the people would be out when we knocked on their doors. That's how bad it was, especially if you could hear a big dog behind the door. And Paddy was always passionate and enthusiastic. And we used to do these open-air meetings, these open-air services. Anyone know what I'm talking about? Where you'd go out in the streets and you'd preach. The only thing was, there was me and Kay and Paddy. That wasn't a big group. And he insisted that we sang, too. And that was really appalling. I mean, it was never going to attract anybody to Jesus. But I can remember Paddy being a real providential friend and relationship, really encouraging me as a young man in my faith. I am convinced, brothers and sisters, that if we're going to grow, we need those providential relationships. We don't just need friendship. We all, we all, we all thirst for friendship. That's a that's a common desire, surely, in most, if not all of us. Anyone remember the, the TV show Friends? Anyone ever see Friends? I'm just raise your hand, confess, if you ever... I know you were flicking through looking for Christian television and <laughs> Friends just came on. Friends, this idea, these, these people dancing around in the fountain, this idea that they could belong, that they could share their lives, that they could talk about anything. Does anyone remember Cheers, that TV show? Was it Ted Danson in, in Cheers? Sometimes you want to go where everyone knows your name. And they're always glad you came. You want to be where you can see troubles are all the same. You want to go where everyone knows your name. What's the concept here that people are thirsty for? It's friendship. It's belonging. It's relationship. 
And I want to suggest to us tonight that if we're going to grow spiritually, contexts and catalysts for growth, we need more than just friends, but we need providential friends who in the context of community and relationship together will help us to grow and we can help them to grow as well. You see, we do belong together. G.K. Chesterton said, what is life? What is life if we have not life together? The futility of it all. Donald McCullough, who is one of my favourite writers, he, um, I was asked just recently, what's your favourite book of last year? Donald McCullough has written a book called The Wisdom of Pelicans. I commend it to you. If you can get hold of that book, make sure that you, you really do get hold of the book. It's marvellous. And Donald McCullough said, when we consider the blessings of God, the gifts that add beauty and joy to our lives, that enable us to keep going through stretches of boredom and even suffering, friendship is very strong. We need each other. The Bible says very clearly, let's have a look at the verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 21. Okay, it's in a different context, but it says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. We're the body of Christ. We actually need each other. And we need those catalytic relationships. Moses needed Aaron. And Elijah needed Elisha. And David needed Jonathan. And, and Jesus needed his friends. When Jesus went into the Garden of Gethsemane, he, he, he appealed to the Father, let this cup pass away from me. But he never complained that it didn't. But what he did complain about was the fact that his friends fell asleep. Two or three times he complained about that. Could you not watch with me one hour? Jesus needed his friends in that hour of need. Jesus built that inner circle of Peter, James and John. And then when you look at the Apostle Paul, I think sometimes when you read Paul's writings, they can, they, they can, it can almost come across that he was so zealous and so passionate that he didn't really need anybody else at all, that he just was pursuing his mission. That is absolutely not true. When the Apostle Paul writes to young Timothy, he gives an update about his friendships, positive and negative. Negatively, he says stuff like Hymenius and Alexander. He said, I've handed them over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. Wow, don't mess with Paul. I mean, that's pretty... Serious. He talks about Figulus and Hermogenes. They deserted me. Demas, because he loved this world, has, has deserted me and gone uh, elsewhere. Alexander, the metal worker, did me a great deal of harm. So the Apostle Paul lamented the relationships that had eroded, collapsed, even ended in betrayal. But then he also celebrated his key friendships as well. May the Lord show mercy to the household of Anisiphorus, he says. He often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. The Apostle Paul refers to Dr. Luke, who wrote Luke's Gospel and the Acts of the Apostles, as his dear friend Luke. Paul talks about dearly beloved ones 27 times in his letters. And five times he specifically refers to people by name as his dear friend. But there was one pivotal relationship, brothers and sisters, that was really, he really rushed to my mind when I heard yesterday that you are in this series thinking about providential friendships. There was one man 
There was one man who was probably the most significant providential relationship in the Apostle Paul's life. He was a bridge builder, a door opener, an encourager. He did so many things. I want to suggest if it were not for this man, we may have lost the Apostle Paul to the church. If it was not for this man, we may therefore have lost a third of the New Testament. That's how catalytic, that's how uh, significant the impact of this particular man was. And his name is Barnabas. Barnabas. Barnabas is, uh, is mentioned 25 times in the book of Acts. He's mentioned five times in the epistles. But I want to suggest to us tonight, he is the most overlooked character in the Bible. And I've just spent a year studying him and finished writing a book. It's coming out in a couple of weeks about Barnabas. And I wrote the book because I couldn't find books about Barnabas. And I thought, what is this about? There is a couple of books that I can actually find in the world, in print, about this man. Despite the fact that he played such a significant role not only in Paul's life, but a significant role in the life of the early church. He's called a prophet. He's called a teacher. He's called an apostle. One through whom God worked miraculous signs and wonders. But he was really key in the life of Saul, who, as you know, then became Paul. So, before we go any further, what do we know about this guy? Well, first of all, we know that he was from the Mediterranean island of Cyprus. Um, he was from the tribe of Levi, a priestly tribe. Uh, so he was a Cypriot living uh, probably in Jerusalem permanently. Um, his aunt Mary and his cousin were John Mark, and they played a very significant role in the life of the early church. Um, it was a fairly well-to-do family. Mary had a house big enough for prayer gatherings and she was rich enough to have servants. And Barnabas donated property to the church in the early part of the book, the book of Acts. So, uh, fairly, um, fairly well-heeled people. And I would like to suggest to you that I think that Barnabas was a bit of a Tom Cruise as well. Now you say, how on earth do you come to that conclusion, Pastor Jeff. Well, in ancient Christian art, uh, Barnabas is always, nearly always depicted as bearded, holding often a scroll of the Gospel of, of Matthew. He's often depicted holding an olive branch because he was someone who tried to extend grace and peace. But when he and Paul went to a city called Lystra, the citizens of that city who were into Greek mythology they came rushing out and started worshipping Barnabas and Paul. Now, Paul, they thought, um, or Barnabas, they thought, was Zeus. Um, and uh, Zeus, in classical Greek mythology, was a really, really good-looking guy. Very, very handsome. And Paul was not tagged that way. Uh, and in fact, ancient historians have said that Paul was a short guy with not much hair. Nothing wrong with that. And, uh, and a really crooked nose and an eyebrows that met in the middle. I don't know whether that's true, but that's what historians say. But Barnabas was mistaken for Zeus. Whether or not he was a looker doesn't matter. What really matters is that he lived a life beautifully and he really prompted growth in Paul. 
Now, as we look at this for the next few minutes, I want us to think broadly about this. I want us to think, am I this kind of person in the lives of others? And then I'd like us to bring it back to us and say, do I have these kind of relationships in my life? I want us to think tonight about what we can give and also whether we are building relationships that are really catalyzing us for growth. So, if you're following along, let's, let's take a look. And I know there are eight points. And some of you are looking at the eight points. And you're very, very afraid. It's going to be okay, alright? We're going to look at these briefly together. First one is this. If you want to be someone who promotes growth in others, get alongside them with encouragement. Get alongside them with encouragement. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles call Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. Barnabas's name was Joseph. But get this, he was such a consistent encourager that he got a nickname from the apostles. They said, no, Joseph's no good for you as a name. You're so encouraging, we're going to have to call you Barnabas from now on. Son of encouragement, son of exhortation. Um, Yesterday I I went to the airport to pick up Kay and when I got to the airport I had to wait around for a little while, you know the way that works. And uh, I suddenly thought of a friend that I hadn't, I've not seen him for 20 years, English guy, now living in Texas. And I thought, I'm going to just call this guy and see how he's doing. And we we, we visited for a while and then he said, you know, he said, Jeff, I'm, I'm kind of disappointed because People in my church tell me that I'm an encourager. He said, that sounds a little bit not very special. He said, I thought maybe I'd be something more significant than just an encourager. His name is Ian, and I said, Ian, let me tell you, one of the greatest things that anyone can ever say to you is that your name is encouragement. And the word encourage here doesn't just mean cheer up, it's going to be okay. The word encouragement means to exhort people, to draw alongside them and to even, even to speak powerfully into their lives. John Maxwell said, adding value to others requires a person to give of themselves and it rarely occurs by accident. Are we, are we the kind of people who look for opportunities to encourage people? Every now and again, uh, I bump into Christians who seem to look for opportunities to criticize. Have you ever met them? They're, uh, they're the sort of frozen chosen. They're, they're not very happy about anything. And they're always looking for an opportunity to point out the problems. The New Testament teaches us that we need to be people who try and find opportunities, try and find ways to actually Uh, bless people. Truett Cathy said, how do you identify someone who needs encouragement? That person is breathing. I really like that. Uh, Dr. Larry Crabb said, encouragement is not a technique to be mastered. It's a sensitivity to people and a confidence in God that must be nourished and demonstrated. I've told you this before, but uh, Pastor Darry is one of the most encouraging human beings I've ever met, and I think I've told you before, we we played golf together. We've only ever played golf together once. Never again. Never again, because he is so stinking good. And I am not good. I don't have a swing, it's a spasm. It's really pathetic. 
And I remember being out in the golf course with Pastor Darry, and I hit the ball. I was really nervous because I know he's so good. And I took my first shot, drive, whatever, I don't even know what the words are. And I, uh, I hit the ball straight into the water. And he said, great shot, Lucas. And I said, what do you mean great shot? I said, that's really cheesy and superficial. I just, I just hit the ball into the water. And he said, Jeff, you just hit the ball. <laughs> and he was right. He was trying to find something to encourage me about. Not superficial and certainly not lying to people. But are we the kind of friends, are we the kind of people who look, who go out of our way to try and encourage people. Just a few minutes ago before the service, I posted on Facebook because tomorrow in Britain is our general election. Uh, it's, our, it's our big time when the government is going to be replaced tomorrow after five years. How many like this? We only allow an election campaign that lasts six weeks. How many think that's a pretty cool idea? Yeah. And, uh, and I, I, I just posted on Facebook, you know, pray for members of parliament who tomorrow are going to discover that they've no longer got a job. They're going to be voted out. And 150 people liked it, but some people immediately started sniping and saying, well, we need to hold them to account. Well, yeah, we do. But how many know that sometimes those in public service, all they ever get is our complaints and never our encouragement? Let's be people who really nurture and help each other with encouragement. Secondly, let's take risks on people. Let's take risks on people. When Saul came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and not really believing that he was a disciple. Then Barnabas brought Saul to the apostles. I want you to get this picture. Saul was the persecutor of the church in Jerusalem. When Luke talks about that persecution, he uses Greek terms that describe Paul, or Saul as he was then, as being hungry for blood. And Saul himself, writing later as Paul, he talks about how he hounded Christians to death. So this guy was a killer, and then he becomes a Christian. But when he becomes a Christian, he doesn't immediately go back to Jerusalem. How many know that was probably fairly prudent? Because he had left the trail of pain behind him. There's some years before he goes back to Jerusalem. And when he goes back to Jerusalem, he tries to visit with the Jerusalem church. The Greek in that text means he kept on trying to visit them and they were terrified. How many would? You can't blame them, can you? Can I put this in a bit of a context here? Imagine, imagine a terrorist who was well known, who suddenly, having tortured and executed Christians, suddenly showed up at your small group at your house. You're going to be a little nervous, aren't you? I don't think we understand anything at all about persecution. Just a few weeks ago, I got the tiniest taste of what it might feel like for about two minutes. Um, I was preaching in Malaysia, and in Malaysia, uh, it's a Muslim-controlled um, government where uh, it's illegal to reach out to the Malays, who are 99% Muslim. If you try and share Jesus with them, it is illegal, and if they make a response to Jesus... They will be taken to camps deep in the jungle. They may have their children taken away from them. 
And so there is this atmosphere of, of tension and they sometimes have government spies in the church. And I was with this amazing congregation of a couple of thousand people, most of them really young, wearing skinny jeans and uber cool. And I felt unbelievably old. And I shared with them over a three-day period, then went to Thailand, then had to come back to Malaysia. When I came back to Malaysia, just overnighting before going back to London, I went to check in at the hotel at the airport, and here's what happened. I went up to the check-in desk, and the guy behind check-in, he said, what's your name, sir? I said, Lucas. He said, I know who you are. I said, excuse me. He said, well, I saw your email address and he said, I noticed you had a website. So he said, I got onto your website. I know who you, you write Christian books, don't you? I said, yeah. And he had a big smile and he was being really friendly and really welcoming. And then I got up into my room and at three o'clock in the morning, I woke up and this thought popped into my head. I thought, what if he found out who I was, got on the phone and contacted one of the ISIS cells that have been threatening Kuala Lumpur over the last few weeks and said, I've got a Christian leader here for 10 grand, you can have him. I got out of bed. Kay was asleep. I checked the windows. I checked the doors. I checked my escape route route. I checked an escape route for Kay as well. I hope you thought that was really rather considerate. Was it likely that something was going to happen? Of course not. How many know it's three o'clock in the morning, fears get exaggerated? But when I woke up in the morning, and of course nothing happened, I realised that just for a minute or two of fear, I had tasted what it might feel like to have a sense that someone might knock on the door. It was just a tiny snippet of an experience. Barnabas chose to believe the best about Saul. He made a choice to take a risk on him. Stephen Kendrick says, love chooses to believe the best about people. It gives them the benefit of the doubt. It refuses to fill in the unknowns with negative assumptions. And when our worst hopes are proven to be true, love makes every effort to deal with them and move forward. As much as possible, love focuses on the positive. I think it was Runyard Kipling who said, I always prefer to believe the best of everybody. It saves so much trouble. Now, I want to just say this before we move on really quickly because that clock is moving fast. There are limits to that. That doesn't mean that we should be foolish. That doesn't ever mean, for example, that we, if we have concerns about somebody that we would deliberately put children at risk. And I think you know where I'm going with this because we just want to believe the best. We have to be appropriately cautious and create safe environments for people. And sometimes churches have been places where abuse has been perpetuated because people just said, well, just believe the best. It'll be okay. So, okay, there are limits on that. But in our relationships, let's endeavour uh, wherever possible to believe the best. Thirdly, let's be genuinely interested. Let's be genuinely interested. Then Barnabas brought Saul to the apostles and told them how Saul had seen the Lord on the way to Damascus and how the Lord had spoken to Saul. He also told them that Saul had preached boldly in the name of Jesus in Damascus. Do you know what? Barnabas knew Saul's story 
and he was able to rehearse it. He was able to speak up for Saul because he had taken the trouble to listen to him. I've got a confession to make and I think this is being recorded so I probably shouldn't say this but I'm going to just confess. Kay and I, as we, we travel around and sometimes we go to different churches and different nations and we're met at the airport and we sometimes play this little game. It's really naughty, we shouldn't do it. But we, we kind of wonder, we speculate about whether the person who's meeting us will actually be remotely interested in anything about our lives. How was the flight? Fine, we landed. How was the food? Yeah, it was recognisable. And then very often we find that we live in a world where people really are not terribly interested. And I can fall into that trap as well. Isn't it true that when someone says, as Pastor Darry often talks about this, tell me more, when we give the gift of interest and listening, it's absolutely priceless. Lewis Smeads said, listening is the silent shape of caring. We listen to what the other person says to us, but we listen closest when no words are spoken. We listen for the unuttered message of feeling. We listen for pain expressed in disguised sighs. We listen for desires heard only in the language of the eyes. We listen to our own messages to learn how they were heard through the filter of the other person's needs. Are we people who listen? Because if we will, it will be priceless to others. Here's another confession. Feeling in the need for quite a lot of confession tonight. And it happened about a hundred yards from here. I was out there some years ago, because I'm obviously much more mature now. I was out there in the hall, and you know what it's like at Timberline on a Sunday? There's a lot of people around, and, and crowds coming in, and crowds going out. And as pastors, we're walking around and trying to figure out what, what time's the next service starting, and, and how do I need to change that sermon, and do I just need to run out of the building and run home and cry? All of those sort of thoughts. And I walked past this gentleman, uh, and as he walked past me over by the bathrooms there, um, I said, how are you doing? And I carried on walking. I, just, I, I mean, I know when you say, how are you doing in America, you're not expecting x-ray charts, I get that. But I said, how are you doing? And I just carried on. And I got about 50 yards down the hall, and he was out here somewhere, and he yelled down the hall, Fine! I stopped in my tracks. I was so embarrassed because I'd done a perfunctory thing, the casual thing, and had forgotten that actually a moment shared could be a priceless moment, not because he's anything special and certainly not because I'm anything special, but do we give the gift of interest, listening, tell me more. Fourthly, let's give people space to grow. Let's give people space to grow. Quickly, there was a a major outbreak of the Holy Spirit happening in a city called Antioch. And Antioch was a pagan city where all kinds of terrible things, temple prostitution and other stuff was happening. And the Gentiles, non-Jews, were coming into the church in droves. 
And the church in Jerusalem hadn't figured on this, even though Jesus had told them very clearly that was their mission. The church was almost exclusively Jewish up until that point. So who do they send to investigate what's going on? They send Barnabas. And Barnabas goes and it says that he saw evidence of the grace of God and he was glad. You know, it's amazing when someone comes into Timberline whose life is completely messed up and grubby. But you know, one of the big challenges can be for us, if we're not careful, is that first of all, we forget that not only were we sinners, but that we are still under construction. And secondly, we can get a little impatient if they don't get themselves sorted out quickly enough. Barnabas, it's beautiful, because these Antiochene Christians, there's probably all kinds of mess still in their lives, but he saw the grace of God. He looked for the grace of God, and he encouraged them. Let's give people space to grow. How many of you, like me, are still growing? Anyone here still growing? How many of you have arrived? Anyone arrived? Once or twice I've met Christians who tell me that they're now sinless. You know, I'm so tempted to just give them a kick and find out. We are all still on the journey, aren't we? And so we offer grace to others and give them space to grow. Number five, invest heavily in others. Invest heavily in in others. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. Acts 11. After Paul went to Jerusalem, he then did a little preaching. He came under some attack, but he then went back to his home city of Tarsus. And if you study scripture carefully, you will see that he was there for 10 years in total obscurity. No church was planted in Tarsus. Some people try to say that he did various things at that time. There is no biblical evidence of Saul doing anything much in that 10-year period. Barnabas is in Antioch. He's seen the grace of God. And then he says, I need some help around here. Now, who would you choose to be the co-pastor of the church that had been launched because there was persecution in Jerusalem? Here's a really good idea. How about the guy who 10 years or 12 years earlier was the persecutor who was the reason for them being in Antioch in the first place? Can you imagine that in the church business meeting? I want to introduce a new co-pastor to you. People looked at Saul and they said, we recognize him. But the Bible says that Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And he looked, the words that are used there, he looked high and low for him. He really, he really wanted to find this guy. And he made uh, a major effort to find him. Uh, Dr. Robin Gallagher Branch has written about Barnabas. She says, Barnabas clearly and consistently recognized God's grace in unlikely people, the murderer Saul, the uncircumcised Gentiles in Antioch, and in his cousin John Mark, who seemed a fearful, spineless deserter, an early casualty in the mission field, he sought them out. Ladies and gentlemen, if we're going to have friends, or if we're going to be the kind of friends that help others to grow, we need to invest. We need to look them out. We need to spend money and time and thoughtfulness 
and effort in helping them. Number six, celebrate others' blessings. Celebrate others' blessings. Paul and Barnabas are in Antioch for a year, and then the Holy Spirit speaks and says, now I want you to go out onto the mission field and preach the gospel all over that part of the world. At the beginning of that missionary journey, here's how it goes. It's Barnabas and Saul. In that culture, the most important person is named first. Barnabas and Saul. Within a short time, within that missionary journey, Saul gets a name change. He becomes Paul, Paul. And then we start to read Paul and Barnabas. Everything is switched around. You know, it's really nice when other people get blessed, but it can be slightly challenging when they get blessed more than you. But Barnabas had that heart where he was celebrating, celebrating what God was doing in Paul's life. Do we have friends who can truly celebrate with us when God blesses us, when God uses us, and are we those kind of people? Number seven. Number seven, don't be a people pleaser. You say, where does this fit in? Don't be a people pleaser. Well, I haven't got time to talk a lot about it, but there was a moment in Barnabas's life back in Antioch. Let me explain it very quickly. Peter came to visit the church there and suddenly Barnabas, this man of grace, started to separate from the Gentile Christians. There was a group that visited the church. They were Jewish fanatical Christians. They were fanatical for Christians to go back to the old Jewish laws. And they put pressure on Barnabas. Now, in all that I've told you, it's obvious that Barnabas loved people. That was his strength. But you see, whatever your strength is, there's a component weakness to it as well. And so Barnabas doesn't want to offend these guys. And so he starts to separate himself from the Gentile converts And then Paul comes back into town and he writes about it in Galatians and he gets into Peter's face and Barnabas too and he tells them straight, how dare you compromise the gospel. The weakness of Barnabas is that he loved people so much he just didn't want to offend them. Brothers and sisters, if we're going to be true friends to others, if we're going to really catalyze their growth, Let's not congratulate them when they're doing something stupid. Let's not endorse them in foolishness and just say, yeah, that's fine, looks great, go ahead. Because we want to please them. Let's stay true to the story. Let's be faithful to at times say, no, you're getting it wrong there. Let me gently, lovingly help you to see that. Let's be true to the story and not just be people pleasers. Uh, I can think of times in my life where I was about to make a decision and I asked my friends about it and they didn't want to upset me so they said, yeah, go ahead and I did and it was a mess. By the way, if you want people to speak into your life like that, you have to tell them 27 times in five different languages and print them a license. Don't just say, tell me what you think because generally people won't. But if we can really build relationships where we say, I want to know what you think, and then be willing to be faithful if we're on the other side of that, 
that will so help people. Last thing is this, number eight. Be loyal when it's awkward. Be loyal when it's awkward. When you look at Barnabas' story, he goes on this mission trip with the Apostle Paul and with John Mark, his young cousin. John Mark gets scared and leaves the mission group. And then later on, Barnabas wants to give him another chance. Paul says, no, I'm not having him on my team. Barnabas says, give the boy a break. And think about it from Barnabas's point of view. He'd given Saul a break, hadn't he? Barnabas says, give him a chance. Paul says, no, they have a fight. Not fight, fight, but fight, fight. And um, they part company and they never minister together again. And Paul forms an, another catalyst group to go on his next missionary journey and, and Barnabas sails off into the distance and we never hear from him again. Luke doesn't tell us who he thinks was right in the fight. I've, I've got to tell you this, whatever it's worth, maybe not much, my sympathies are with Barnabas. I love the fact that he really wanted to give John Mark another chance and actually, later on, Paul speaks warmly of John Mark. Even at a distance, he speaks warmly of Barnabas. But they never get together and work together in ministry again. Well, it's three minutes to eight. So what happened to this guy before you go out into the glorious Colorado evening? What happened to him? Well, it's very likely that he went to Cyprus He's traditionally honoured there as the founder of the church and he helped nourish the church there. There's also a tradition that he became the first bishop of Milan. And church tradition says that he was martyred, that Barnabas was martyred, um, some say in AD 55, which would have been about six years after that conflict with Paul. Others say it happened 20 years after that date. And the tradition goes like this that he was preaching in Syria and in Salamis with extraordinary success and he was debating in the synagogue and he was dragged out, tortured terribly and then stoned to death. Uh, some say that he was um, burned as well. And there's one other little tradition that I wanted to share with you before we go out of here tonight. Church history and tradition says that a young man came to collect the bruised and burned body of Barnabas. Church tradition and history says that young man was John Mark. The man that Barnabas had been loyal to and faithful to. And then the Apostle Paul, who was in Ephesus apparently when Barnabas died and was told the news. This man was faithful and loyal, provoked growth in John Mark, provoked growth in the Apostle Paul. His contribution to history is incalculable. I would like to be that kind of friend and I would like to have those kind of friends. When you've got a Barnabas in your life, you're going to grow spiritually. Would you stand with me if you're able? We're going to pray together. Let's stand.
Lord, we thank you and praise you for the, the stories of your word that don't just call us to grow, but give us directions and hints as to how we can grow in you. And as we look at this incredible man, Barnabas, and the life that he lived, we want to be that kind of person and we want those kind of people in our lives. Earlier tonight, Lord, we were thinking about people who had helped us and why they did it. As we conclude tonight, Lord, help us to be people of encouragement who appropriately take risks with people and try and believe the best wherever possible. In our busy lives, Lord, help us to be interested, to listen to words and heart, to be gracious and patient and give people space to grow. Help us to build quality relationships because we invest in them to celebrate others' blessings when you bless them more than you bless us in some ways. Help us to be honest and not just be pleasers of people, to speak the truth lovingly. And help us to be loyal when it's awkward. We pause, Lord, and we whisper the names of some of our friends to you. pause and we ask you to help us to be those kind of people to others. And where we feel a dearth of friendship, not just friendship, but growth-inducing friendship, we ask you to help us to identify and invest in people around us that can help us in our mutual growth together. Finally, Lord, before we go out of here tonight, we pray for Pastor Brent and Kristen. We thank you so much for them. We pray for Kristen, Lord, that you will be close to her tonight and bring healing to her. Break this cycle of ill health that she has suffered from. Be with Brent and their entire family. Strengthen them, we pray, in your grace. So we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Everyone said, Amen. Well, it's great to see you tonight. God bless you as you go. Please drive really safely. If you want to uh, leave an offering tonight, as you know, regular Wednesday nighters, uh, you can give an offering as you leave tonight. God bless you and look forward to seeing you at the weekend. Great to see you tonight. God bless. <laughs>